So, as you know, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, we are following a short sermon series um, based on this book. Um, It's a book by Adam Hamilton called Half-Truths. The subtitle, God Helps Those Who Help Themselves and Other Things the Bible Doesn't Say. And uh, so we started off a couple of weeks ago. Andy began with God Helps Those Who Help Themselves. And then last week we looked at God won't give you more than you can handle. And several people said how helpful they found that sermon. So it is available on our website. You can go to bgbc.co.uk and listen to all our sermons back there. Or subscribe to one of the the podcast where you'll get it delivered each week. Uh, This week our topic is God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's about our approach to the Bible and how we read the Bible. In the introduction to the book, Adam Hamilton writes this. Most of us as Christians have things we believe and tell others and even count on that we've not carefully examined. Some of the things we've accepted and repeat to others sound so true and we've believed them for so long that they become what some call sacred cows, things above question or criticism. When these beliefs are questioned, we become defensive or irritated. We may even worry that if the beliefs aren't true, the rest of our faith may crumble. It's not my intention this morning to undo your faith or cause your faith to crumble, but it is to help us think well together, particularly about the Bible. And uh, his book and this sermon series is called Half-Truths for a Reason. Because the things we're looking at are not untrue. There is some measure of truth in them. You can find Bible verses to back them up if you choose to. But the question is, when you look at them more carefully, when you look at them under the the microscope, if you like, do they really stand up well? And a lot of that is to do with the context that they're written in. Sometimes it's very easy to take a Bible verse and pluck it out of context. In fact, you could almost make the Bible say anything you wanted it to if you were to do that. Because it's written across a long enough time period and it's diverse enough for you to find a Bible verse to justify almost anything. The question, therefore, is, is it the right use of that Bible verse? Or when we look at it in the context of when it was written, the chapter it was written in, the overarching story of Scripture, are we using that verse in the right way? Or are we taking it out of context? What some people call proof texting. Let me give you a couple of examples. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. That has been used for many years as a justification for beating your children. Kids, are you listening? Is that right use? Is that appropriate? How is it culturally located? Is it from a time and a period? And do we actually need to think about it and how we apply it in our context and our time? It's more complicated than simply plucking a verse out and saying, there you go, I told you. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Sorry, Angie. We're beyond that, aren't we? 
aren't we? So that was used for years and has been used for years to oppress women within places of worship. And actually, how do we think about that now? Do we think about that well? Should we think about that differently? How do we... So Bible verses have been taken over the years to oppress all sorts of people and used in all sorts of different ways. The question is, are they good ways? And that's our subject today. What I want to be able to do to reassure you all is to say that I love the Bible. In truth, I love bits of the Bible and bits I struggle with. And if you don't struggle with some sections of the Bible, can I humbly suggest that you're not reading it closely enough? But uh, this book shapes my life. I engage with it every single day. I try to take it seriously. I am what might be described as a Bible nerd. On Friday, I went out for a long run, and I chose to listen to a commentary on Leviticus while I was out for an hour and a half running. Actually, it's a very good commentary, and we're going to do Leviticus in the autumn, so you're going to get it whether you like it or not. But it was good stuff. I take this book seriously. I believe it is the inspired word of God. It points us to Jesus, and I try to engage it. But I wrestle with it, folks. I wrestle hard with it about some of the things it says and how I'm to live and apply them. But please don't hear me this morning saying you shouldn't take the Bible seriously because that is not what I am saying. We are here to take the Bible more seriously, I think. Which I guess is my problem with this phrase. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Kind of taking the black and white verse of the Bible, plucking it out of context and saying, well, God said that, that's it, end of discussion. There's nothing else, nothing further to say about this subject, because there it is in black and white, you're wrong. That way of using the Bible, I think, is an abuse and is wrong. And here's the several reasons for that. One is I think it's a gross oversimplification of the text. The Bible is much more interesting than that. Let me give you an example. It can lead to some strange readings if you try to follow that logic. This is our reading for today. It's from Deuteronomy 23, 12 to 24. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. But you never thought you'd hear a sermon on this, did you? <laughs> For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and deliver, you from, deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. Deuteronomy 23, 12 to 24. Anyone heard a sermon on this before? No, okay, there's a good reason for that. But if you'd have been around in the 1880s, 140 years ago, you would, because this was an incredibly popular text to be preached around that time. That is Bessel's Green Baptist Church's outhouse. It's just out there, outside of the... Um, outside of the kitchen. The plumbing's now blocked up, but it used to be a, an outside toilet, the privy. And back in the day, if you'd have needed to use the facilities, 
during the service, you would have had to have gone out and used our outhouse. The reason this became such a popular subject in 1880 was because indoor plumbing was beginning to become available. And the question came up, should we put toilets inside our church building? And many people argued, no, you shouldn't, because the Lord will turn his face from us and be disapproving because of this verse in Deuteronomy. Times have changed, haven't they? Times are different. Sorry, do you want a hand? Let me, let me move that. There you go. No problem. In fact, you wouldn't think today about building a church without one of the first questions being, how many toilets do we need? Do we need disabled facilities and where should we put them? But in 1880, it was a hot topic because the Bible says it. If we were to try to follow all the rules and laws that are in the Bible, literally, it would be a challenge. In fact, these two people have attempted it. Um, A.J. Jacobs attempted to follow every single law in the Bible, literally for one year. And Rachel Held Evans, who uh, very sadly died two weeks ago um, from a reaction to antibiotics, leaving a one-year-old and a six-year-old. Just one of my favourite authors. And I, I... I wept when I heard the news. Amazing how uh, somebody you've never met can affect you through their books. But she wrote a book called A Year of Biblical Womanhood. Could she follow all the rules for women in the Bible? And they both concluded, with some humour, I have to say, no. Actually, they couldn't. It was impossible. We have to choose. We have to make some decisions. If you weren't to make decisions, you would have to abide by some of these. Don't wear blended fabrics or sow two different seeds in your fields. So if you've got an allotment, you can't do French beans and potatoes. I'm sorry, you've got to pick one or the other. Eliminate pork and shrimp from your diet. For men, don't trim the edges of your beards. Children who curse or strike their parents who are persistently rebellious should be put to death. Okay, parents, you enjoyed that one a little too much. Don't mow your lawn or clean your house on Saturdays, the Sabbath, or you'll be put to death. And for women, if you're not a virgin when you marry, the men of your town are to stone you to death. Uh, To take a dry well, throw you down the bottom and heap stones. Actually, there's no evidence that that was ever carried out. But that instruction and rule is in the Bible. About 18 months or so ago, um, I had a young man come to see me in my office. He was quite angry and was quite up in my face and upset with something I'd said. And he said I wasn't taking the Bible seriously anymore. And he could no longer sit under my ministry because I was refusing to take a particular verse from Leviticus and apply it black and white as it stands to today's society. And I sat there listening as he got really quite angry and thumped the desk. And I noticed that he had quite a few tattoos on both arms. So I said to him, um, I don't mean to be funny, but you're quoting from Leviticus, correct? So let's take a look at Leviticus 19, verse 28, shall we? Which says this, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. And I said, so why do you choose this one and not that one? Now, I know I was being a little bit naughty, 
because I was taking that out of context as well. Because actually the context of this is tribal pagan worship around, where they tattooed one another and where they cut themselves. And God is saying to the people of Israel, you are to be set apart and different, so don't do what they do in their practices for worship. Don't tattoo yourself. But I did have to say to this guy, look, whether you admit it or not, whether you're honest about it or not, you are choosing some things because they suit the way you think, and you are rejecting other things because they don't suit the way you think. Now, I don't mean to undermine you, but let's just be honest about it. And let's put it on the table, and then let's talk about it, rather than just have it unsaid. This is from the chapter from Adam Hamilton. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Whether Christians admit it or not, we seldom actually read the Bible with the thought that God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. I remember speaking to a Christian some years ago who said to me, I don't interpret scripture. I just take it as God's word and try to live it. I asked him, so you refrain from eating pork and you don't go to church and you go to church on Saturday? To which he replied, no, that's the Old Testament. (laughs) Okay, so that you insist that your wife prays with her head covered and that your daughters not braid their hair and that you have no savings accounts? He replied, no, those passages were about the times when the biblical authors lived, but not today. To which I replied, in other words, you interpret scripture. The other challenge with God said it is that it doesn't reflect the way Jesus used scripture. When Jesus heals a leper, he immediately says to the man, go and present yourself to the, to the, the rulers in the temple, to the leaders in the temple, which is exactly what the law says he is supposed to do. He's saying, follow the law of Moses. Go present yourself in the temple. And then when the disciples are hungry and they're walking through a field of corn on the Sabbath, he says to them, go pick, pick corn, rub it together, eat it, which is a flagrant breaking of the law. So Jesus seems to apply it in one context, but not in the other. So Jesus seems to take the context seriously when he thinks about how to apply the law. Does that make sense? In perhaps the most famous sermon in the Bible, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the sections says, you've heard it said, but I say. Jesus takes an Old Testament law and he says, you've heard it said this, but I want you to think about it like this. And he puts his rabbinical spin on it. Folks, that was not unusual. That's what rabbis did. Rabbis would take ideas and they would have a passion about something and they would take the Old Testament scriptures and reinterpret them, if you like, in the context of what they were passionate about. And we should be passionate about what Jesus was passionate about, surely. It's actually an ancient practice. It's called Midrash. It's commentary on the Old Testament. You've probably heard the old joke, put three rabbis in a room, get five opinions. If you've ever, I I thoroughly recommend, by the way, listening to some good Jewish sermons. Some good rabbi, some sermons from a really good rabbi. Their ability to bring scripture to life is fantastic. And it's partly due to this practice of Midrash. The Midrash was written down, um, and you can read some of them. And it's this extended commentary on scripture, this imagining, this reading between the lines, this, this just fantastic, beautiful explanation of the Bible. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking a passage, he's looking at his context, and he's expanding it. 
and expounding it. This practice of midrash, you, you might describe it as putting the scripture in the middle of a room and having everyone around and going, so what do you see in this? What do you see in this? How does God speak to you in this? How does God speak to you in that? And being surprised when you hear things. Because we don't all have access to the truth, do we? I don't, I'm, I'm wrong. I don't have all the ideas, so I need other people. And that's the practice of midrash, this debate and this discussion. And for me, it brings scripture to life. It's not about mining for the right answer, the one right answer, but actually saying, how does this speak? How does this live? What does this mean for me and my friends and for you? And how can I learn from you? And how can we learn from one another? It just brings the Bible to life for me. One of the thoughts... Um, who was John and who was Paul? Well, John wrote these famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. But when John wrote that, I don't think he knew he was going to be writing the Bible. When John wrote those words down, he was trying to write down a story to capture for future generations this relationship he'd had with Jesus, this person he'd met. And he was trying to write it down so that it wouldn't get forgotten. And Paul did the same thing when Paul wrote his letters to the churches. I don't think Paul thought, I'm writing future scripture here. Paul was writing to a church in Galatia, in Corinth, in Ephesus. And he was engaging with them. And I humbly suggest to you that when you read John and when you read Paul, you are hearing the Spirit of God speaking to you. But you are also hearing the voice of John. You were also hearing the voice of Paul, of the person they were, the context they lived in, their prejudices, their biases, their whole selves. And if we want to engage seriously with the Bible, we need to ask questions about who's John? Who was Paul? What culture and community was he a part of at the time? And yes, inspired by God, absolutely. God breathed, God inspired his actions. But simultaneously, the writings of a person in a culture, in a context, in a time. Are we getting away with this, folks? Are we, are we on with this? At least I'm hopefully giving you something to talk about over lunch. Just don't stoke the fires up too hot. In Paul's letters, he never claims that his words and thoughts are synonymous with God's words and thoughts. He does, however, trust that he is led by the Spirit. In response to questions from believers in his churches, he writes to teach, encourage, correct, and mentor his flock. Does God speak through him in this? Of course. Does God still speak through Paul's words to us today? Absolutely. But since he is writing as Paul and not God, we must interpret his words. We must seek to understand the times in which Paul wrote, the circumstances he was addressing, and the ways his words continue to address our current situation. Two Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed, and is useful for teaching. Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. I believe it. When Paul says all scripture, remember, scriptures for Paul were his Old Testament. 
he's not talking about the letter he's currently writing to Timothy. And he says all scripture because there was an argument at the time. Some of the Sadducees were saying that only the Torah was scripture. Only the Torah could be counted as scripture. The wisdom literature and the prophets should be discarded and we should just read Torah. And that was an argument that was live at the time. So when Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, he's saying the Torah and the wisdom and the prophets. Not the letter that he's currently writing. Now, hear me, that doesn't mean that the letter that he's not writing is not inspired and that actually we can read it. He was inspired by the Spirit of God. But that's not actually the question Paul was addressing when he wrote that. But I do believe it. That scripture is inspired, God-breathed, and useful for us. Why does this stuff matter? Why should we care about this? I hope no one was wondering that, but just in case you were. Um, Because people are leaving the churches, people in their 20s around the world are leaving the churches in droves. Because they're done with an oversimplistic not very well thought through, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, approach to faith and the Bible. It matters to me because Holly, my daughter, who just has left um, Seven Oaks School, had a leaving due yesterday, has been studying philosophy for her A-level. And her philosophy teacher, she did philosophy of religion as one of the subjects at Seven Oaks School. And I was so cross helping her revise. So cross. In fact, I'm glad I didn't see the philosophy lecturer yesterday at the Leavers Do, because I wanted to drag him to one side and had a long, heated conversation. Because the picture that he painted of Christianity wasn't one I recognised. It wasn't one that I believed in. It was a straw man argument of this very simplistic, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, black and white, And don't worry, it's easy to knock down then. And it just made me cross. And why does it matter? Because I want Holly's faith to endure. I want her to have a faith that can deal with the hardships of life, that can think about faith, that can think intelligently about when when those difficult passages that we wrestle with, that we honestly, that we must and should wrestle with, when they come up, she's equipped with the hermeneutical tools, to give it its technical name, to go, actually, I can wrestle with this, and I don't just have to go, by faith, I'm done, and throw the baby out with the bathwater. That she is hearing from this community at Bethel's and from her dad that it's okay to use your brain and to think and to get stuck in and wrestle. Then hopefully she'll have a faith that will endure and live her life long through rather than be something that gets chucked out when she finds a contradiction or a story or an idea that offends her or is difficult. That's why it matters to me. It might matter to you, it might not matter to you, but it matters to me, so I get to choose the preaching, so tough. (laughs) You have to listen. The Bible contains the defining story of my life. Its words and teachings shape who I am and who I hope to be. I study it daily, praying that God will speak to me as I do. But I read it recognising that the biblical authors were people, writing for various purposes and for specific audiences in a particular historical circumstance. circumstance. These authors related their experiences of God, 
the way they heard him speak, as well as the things they thought and believed about God and God's will for their lives. God was at work in them, influencing their writing, and continues to influence all of us as we read their words. But that is far different from saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Adam Hamilton. And I nearly put my signature next to it. Perhaps a better truth might be this. God influenced it. I read it and study and sometimes wrestle with it. And as I interpret it in the light of Jesus Christ, I hear God speak through it and seek to live its words as best I can. Doesn't quite go as well on a bumper sticker, does it? But it's perhaps more complete. If you're intrigued by this idea, if this is new to you and you want to talk to me about it, then that's absolutely fine. I'd love to have... This stuff gives me life. So I'm more than happy to sit and chew this over over a coffee at some stage. But if you wanted to think more about some of the things I've said this morning, let me recommend a few books. Uh, The Badly Behaved Bible by Nick Page. Uh, How the Bible Actually Works by Pete Enns. What is the Bible by Rob Bell and inspired by Rachel Held Evans, which only just came out, sadly. But if you want to engage with this question about how do we read the Bible intelligently, then can I recommend any one of those four books to you? Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. (laughs) We can read the Bible for knowledge, and that's important, but it's much more important that we read it for wisdom about how to live. Just knowing facts is one thing, Learning how to apply those facts and what it looks like and living a life of wisdom, I think, is the Bible's primary task. It is a wisdom book. And it is there to help us live well and flourish in the world that God has given us, blessed and created and calls good. And that's our task when we approach Scripture, is to mine it for wisdom, (coughs) not just for knowledge, because they're different things. This is a quote from Rachel. Um, I was reading Inspired this week, and um, this is a quote from her. And uh, you're all trying to read it ahead. Let me introduce it. Um, It was just disarming because it's so honest. And I thought it expressed an idea beautifully. Um, So, the truth is, you can bend scripture to say just about anything you want to say, you can bend it until it breaks. But those who count the Bible as sacred. Interpretation is not a matter of whether to pick or choose, but how to pick and choose. We are all selective. We all wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible to our lives. We all go to the text looking for something, and we all have a tendency to find it. That's just disarmingly honest. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we reading with the prejudice of love, with Christ as our model, or are we reading with the prejudices of judgment and power, self-interest and greed? Are we seeking to enslave or to liberate, to burden or to set free? Perhaps a good measure of reading the Bible well is asking us this question. 
Does it help us live out the greatest commandment? Does it help us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds and with all our strength? Does it help us to love our neighbour as we love ourselves? Because Jesus says there's no greater commandment than this. So when we think about how to read the Bible, how well is it helping us do that? Or how well is it helping us to model the fruits of the Spirit in the world? Self-control, joy, love, gentleness, generosity, peace, faithfulness, patience and kindness. Because Jesus says it's by your fruit you will be known. Perhaps by the fruit of our Bible study we will be known. And are these the fruits that we are bearing? And that's perhaps a good test and good measure of am I reading the Bible well? Let me just wrap up with this. The Bible is a timely book of timeless truths. So please do read and study the Bible. A day doesn't go past when I'm not engaging with the Bible in some way, shape or form. Debate it and discuss it. Don't be afraid of conversation. Let's get a conversation going about the Bible and how relevant it is to us today. Read it alone, but also read it in groups. Join a small group, debate and discuss. How else are you going to get other people's perspectives other than your own? Unless you sit down in a group around a table and listen and learn together. Don't just fixate on the right answer. I don't know how many of you have sat in the home group and saying, I'm, I'm going to keep quiet because I might be wrong. Can we throw that out the window, please? Because the person, the, the question you're wanting to ask, probably everyone else in the room wants to ask, but no one's got the courage to do it. Because you know there's that person there who's always got the right answer. That's why I don't go to home groups. Because I go to home groups, I kill the conversation. Because I'm not going to speak, Charlie knows the answer. I don't. I'm making it up as I go along like you are. Not quite true, but you know what I mean. I'm learning as I go, and you might have better ideas than me on some things. So let's debate and discuss. Practice midrash, that's really what that is. Secondly, recognise your biases. I've said this before, but every point of view is a view from a point. Every point of view is a view from the point. Mine is a particular one, but actually we need voices from other cultures. We need voices from other perspectives to come and inform us because they will bring new wisdom and new light to bear on the Bible. And finally, when you read it, do focus on Jesus. That's the heart, the centre of our Bible message, our gospel message is on Jesus. And observe, as I said, observe the fruit, the things that come from our study together. Is it good fruit? Or if you find God hates all the same people you do, Perhaps that should be a red flag to think again. Amen? Can we pray together? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of the Bible. Uh, we thank you and trust that this is the book you, you wanted for us, that you have for us. That your spirit was influential in those councils that chose which books go in and which books were left out. That your spirit was influential in helping Paul choose what to write and John to choose what to write. But at the same time, help us to engage with it intelligently and with wisdom and seek how to live this life well. The life of flourishing that you desire for each one of us. The life that calls us out to something better. That calls out our best selves. That says it doesn't have to be like this. There is a better way to live, people. Uh, the, 
the book, the story that calls us as a church community to say to the world around us, there is a better way to live, people. There is a kingdom here to be found. Help us to read it for that wisdom in our lives and for that wisdom for the community around us, that we may share your love and your hope and your grace and your peace and your truth with a world that needs it. In Jesus' name. Amen.